everyone. Welcome back to the forum where science comes to socialize. My name's Aubrey. Hey all, this is Cleo and also joining us today is, of course, Daniela. Hey, hey, thanks for tuning in. Always happy to welcome you back. Hope you all enjoyed a little throwback action with the title of today's show. Yeah, so other than our collective love for Pete Wentz and our angsty tween years, what are we actually going to be swinging into today? <laughs> well, today we'll be talking about artificial sweeteners. You mean like Splenda? Or NutraSweet? What's that? What's that pink one? Oh, sweet and low. Yes, exactly. All of those sweeteners you see in colorful little packets at cafes are just a few examples, but sugar substitutes can also be found as an ingredient in products like diet soda. Which tastes so much better than regular soda. Ew, yeah, right. Who knows what they put in diet sodas? With all those rumors going around, some people even say they give you cancer. And this is exactly why I thought this episode might be a good idea. So we can put the rumors to bed, replace them with truth, and finally figure out whether we can enjoy our meals in peace. To help us figure out the real deal about artificial sweeteners, we're joined today by Professor Eric Millstone, a professor of science policy at the Science Policy Research Unit of the University of Sussex, and one of the UK's leading experts on food safety and policy. In addition to our experts' views, though, we want to hear yours. To join Aubrey on the diet soda side, or to agree with Cleo on this one, feel free to reach out to us online. If you don't already follow us, you can find us at facebook.com slash isgpforum, on our website, isgpforum.org, or on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at isgpforum. So let's start right at the beginning, shall we? What are sugar substitutes? When did they first come about? How did they break into the market? And why did they become so popular? Well, simply put, a sugar substitute is a food additive that provides a sweet taste but has significantly less food energy than sugar-based sweeteners, making it a zero-calorie or low-calorie means of sweetening food and beverages. While most people think of sugar substitutes and artificial sweeteners as being synonymous, the terminology is actually important because artificial sweeteners are a type of sugar substitute, kind of like how a square is a type of rectangle. Sugar substitutes can also be derived from plants. They can be produced by processing plant extracts or by chemical synthesis, and there are numerous different kinds. But it's only normal that our minds directly jump to artificial sweeteners because they're significantly more accessible. They've also been around for a surprisingly long time. The first ever artificial sweetener, called saccharin, was originally synthesized by Remsen and Falberg in 1879 and has been used as a non-caloric sweetener for more than 100 years. It's 300 to 500 times sweeter than sugar and is often used to improve the taste of toothpaste, diet foods, and, our favorite, diet soda. Whether you realize it or not, you've consumed saccharin if you're a fan of Sweet and Low or Sugar Twins. Beyond saccharin, several other sweeteners exist, with varying approval status across different countries. Aspartame, one of the most popular sweeteners, was discovered in 1965 by James M. Schlatter at the GD Steel Company. But Schlatter actually had no intention of developing a sweetener. He was working on an anti-ulcer drug and accidentally spilled some aspartame on his hand. When he licked his finger, which you probably should avoid when you're in a lab, actually, like, definitely avoid that, he noticed that it had a sweet taste. 
fortunately it was just a sweet taste and not something way worse. But this odorless white crystalline powder, known to you and me as equal or NutraSweet, is derived from the two amino acids, aspartic acid and phenylalanine. It's typically used as a tabletop sweetener or in frozen desserts, soda, or chewing gum, but not in baked goods. This is because when it's cooked or stored at high temperatures, aspartame breaks down into its constituent amino acids. Interestingly, it's more stable in somewhat acidic conditions, like in Diet Coke. BTW, at this point we've mentioned Coke so many times, I feel like we need to clarify that we're definitely not sponsored by Coke. (laughs) True. I feel like we're being super unfair to Pepsi, but I'm just more of a Coke lover myself. Okay, can we not open that can of worms or, I guess, can of soda? Ha 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 ha. People just have too strong of opinions when it comes to their fizzy beverages. Well, actually, maybe how people feel about different diet sodas depends on the types and quantities of sweeteners used to make them. One of the things I found funny when I was researching this episode is that apparently we measure sugar substitutes by their level of sweetness compared to common sugar. So while saccharin is 300 to 500 times sweeter than sugar, aspartame is 180 to 200 times sweeter. Some sweeteners, such as adventame, which is a kind of aspartame, are so strong that they're literally 20,000 times as sweet as sugar. Because these substitutes are so intensely sweet, much less are needed quantity-wise to sweeten the food product. That's why these products are considered useful for reducing the calorie counts. We'll come back to the health effects after we finish summarizing the types of sweeteners, though. On that note, we definitely can't forget the world's most commonly used artificial sweetener, sucralose, also commonly seen as Splenda. This chlorinated sugar is about 600 times as sweet as regular sugar. It's used in sodas, frozen desserts, chewing gum, baked goods, and other foods. Unlike other artificial sweeteners, sucralose is stable when heated and can therefore be used in baked and fried goods. Discovered in 1976, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, approved sucralose for consumption in 1998. Sucralose is often used in combination with another sweetener called acesulfame potassium, or ACE-K. This one is only 200 times sweeter than common sugar. In this sugar metric we've been using today then, ACE-K is just as sweet as aspartame, about two-thirds as sweet as saccharin, and one-third as sweet as sucralose. Like saccharin, ACE-K has a slightly bitter aftertaste, especially at high concentrations, but there are easily ways to mask this. Yep, and weirdly, this is where a lot of the competition comes in. Kraft Foods, for example, has patented the use of sodium ferulate to mask ACE-K's aftertaste. The unique benefit of ACE-K is that it's stable under heat, even under moderately acidic or basic conditions, allowing it to be used as a food additive in products that require a long shelf life. It's actually common in protein shakes and pharmaceutical products, especially chewable and liquid medicines, like that cherry-flavored cough syrup we all loved growing up. (laughs) Does that mean it's used in all those cherry candies that people say taste like cough medicine? Uh, no. I don't know. (laughs) Stay on subject here. (laughs) That flavor has never been my favorite. My mom loved those cough medicines, though, specifically because they were low sugar. Makes sense. According to Professor Millstone, artificially sweetened products being marketed as diet is one of the more recently common reasons people consume them so much in the first place. Check it out. Different groups of people have different reasons for consuming sweeteners. 
since the mid-1960s, in the UK at any rate, artificial sweeteners have entered the general food supply, and that was in response to rising concerns about being overweight and the fashion for being slender. This change was facilitated and promoted by the use of terms like diet on the labels of soft drinks and other sweetened products. That labeling conveys the impression that if one consumes them, it contributes to a diet that enables you to take control of your calorie intake and your weight. Right. Concerns over sugar consumption have grown proportionally with the increasing levels of obesity we see in much of the Western world. So it only makes sense that one of the key reasons people consume things like diet soda is because, well, they're on a diet. I mean, it makes sense. I for sure drink diet soda to feel a little bit less guilty about the fries I'm washing down with it. You win some, you lose some. Am I right? Right. But I think there are probably more people out there that aren't looking to justify the five guys they devoured last night. Actually, Professor Millstone explained that before people began to consume artificial sweeteners because they were worried about their bikini bods, some people were consuming substitutes to specifically help with glucose metabolism. Let's hear from him again. The most obvious reason why people started to consume artificial sweeteners was if they were suffering from diabetes. If you cannot tolerate some carbohydrates like sugar without it damaging your health, but you want a sweet taste, then artificial sweetness seemed to be a reasonable choice. It varies a lot from country to country. In this country, prior to the mid-1960s, in the UK, artificial sweeteners and products containing them were only sold in pharmacists. They were targeted at people medically diagnosed with diabetes, not for the general population. But those were the days when it was rare to be concerned about obesity or the contribution that sugar consumption was making to people's weight. Actually, I've just connected the dots and realized this is exactly what my dad does. I always grew up with a lot of colorful little artificial sweetener packets all around my house, and I didn't realize it was because my dad is diabetic. I thought it was just because my family was obsessed with losing weight. <laughs> nope, it makes sense that they were first developed for this purpose. People with diabetes have a hard time regulating their blood sugar levels and need to limit their sugar intake. Many artificial sweeteners allow people to eat sweet-tasting foods without increasing blood glucose. Other sweeteners do release energy but are metabolized more slowly, preventing spikes in blood glucose. Similarly, people with reactive hypoglycemia produce excess insulin after quickly absorbing glucose into the bloodstream. This causes their blood glucose levels to fall below the amount needed for proper body and brain function. As a result, like diabetics, they have to avoid high glycemic foods like white bread and often use artificial sweeteners to compensate. And yet another health reason people might consume sugar substitute is da -da -da -da, dental care. Really? I mean, I guess that makes total sense, but for some reason takes me by surprise. Well, maybe that's because while it's well known that sugars feed the bacteria that decay our teeth, it's surprising to learn that sugar substitutes don't. In fact, a sweetener that's said to potentially benefit dental health is xylitol, a plant-derived substitute. It's argued that xylitol tends to prevent bacteria from adhering to the tooth surface, thus preventing plaque formation and eventual decay. What? That just sounds too good to be true. Well, it might just be. 
A review of the research found only low-quality evidence that xylitol and a variety of dental products actually has any benefit in preventing tooth decay. But other studies back the tooth protection claim so much that the FDA and the European Food Safety Authority allow products containing sucralose, to jump back to that sweetener real quick, to claim that they reduce tooth decay. Well, hey, regardless of whether you can get stronger teeth or not, there are other reasons people consume foods containing sugar substitutes. They're cheaper and last longer. Sugar substitutes are often lower in total cost because of their long shelf life and high sweetening intensity. But is there truth to all of these claims? We've already heard some doubt regarding tooth-related claims, and you're just going to have to stick around to learn more. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, listeners. Our show is hosted by the Institute on Science for Global Policy, a nonprofit think tank facilitating multi-stakeholder discussions of science policy topics ranging from climate change to food security. If you're interested in learning more about the ISGP, check out episodes 1 through 74 of the forum or visit scienceforglobalpolicy.org. Welcome back, everyone, to the forum's episode on sugar substitutes. We spent the top of the episode explaining what sugar substitutes are and why people might consume them. But after so patiently waiting, we'll now dive right in with what we know you're actually waiting for. Can you keep drinking your diet soda or what? (laughs) So we know that artificial sweeteners are often the topic of heated debate. On one hand, as you might have heard on social media or your local news, They're claimed to increase your risk of cancer and harm your blood sugar and gut health. On the other hand, most health authorities, including Cancer Research UK and the U.S. National Cancer Institute, consider them safe, and many people use them to reduce their sugar intake and lose weight. Right. Cancer Research UK assures that large studies looking at people have now provided strong evidence that artificial sweeteners are safe for humans, And the National Health Service confirms that all sweeteners in the EU undergo a rigorous safety assessment by the European Food Safety Authority, or EFSA. However, some remain skeptical of the processes undertaken to arrive at such conclusions. Let's hear again from Professor Millstone. My view is that I've yet to encounter any sweetener, whether natural or synthetic, or to use more precise language, whether caloric or non-caloric, that I believe to be entirely innocuous and unproblematic for consumers' health. Clearly, high rates of consumption of sugar and other caloric sweeteners in high quantities is undesirable for the health of most people. But on the other hand, I've yet to be persuaded that any of these are entirely safe. There are significant question marks against all of them. I have concerns about the methodologies with which the safety of artificial sweeteners has been assessed. But that doesn't exhaust my concerns. I think there are also questions about the competence and transparency of both scientific and administrative processes over and above the methodological concerns. As Professor Millstone explains, there's a plethora of information out there. But sources of evidence are often questioned and seem to be stronger in some areas than others. Regardless, we'll do our best to summarize findings on a few different areas of health concerns that, according to the website Healthline, seem to be at the top of people's lists regarding artificial sweeteners. 
These include effects on appetite, weight, diabetes, gut health, and cancer. Some people believe that artificial sweeteners might increase appetite and promote weight gain. The idea is that artificial sweeteners may be unable to activate the food reward pathway needed to make you feel satisfied after you eat. Given that they taste sweet but lack the calories found in other sweet-tasting foods, they're thought to confuse the brain into still feeling hungry. Some scientists think you actually need to eat more of an artificially sweetened food compared with the sugar-sweetened version to feel full. It's even been suggested that sweeteners may cause cravings for sugary foods. That said, many recent studies do not support the idea that artificial sweeteners increase hunger or calorie intake. In fact, several studies have found that participants report less hunger and consume fewer calories when they replace sugary foods and beverages with artificially sweetened alternatives. Confusing, we know. But in summary, most recent evidence leans towards the conclusion that replacing sugary foods or drinks with artificially sweetened ones may reduce hunger and calorie intake. Regarding weight control, some observational studies report a link between consuming artificially sweetened sodas and obesity. However, randomized controlled studies report that artificial sweeteners may reduce body weight, fat mass, and waist circumference. These studies also show that replacing regular sodas with sugar-free versions can decrease body mass index by up to 1.3 to 1.7 points. But while artificially sweetened drinks can be an easy way to decrease sugar consumption, the change realistically won't lead to weight loss if you compensate by eating more. There's also the very real argument that replacing sugary foods with foods that use substitute sugars won't help someone adopt a healthy lifestyle and might even increase someone's addiction to sweet foods. Professor Millstone had a few thoughts on this as well. There is some evidence suggesting that artificial sweeteners are actually appetite stimulants. And while drinking an artificially sweetened soft drink might cause you to ingest fewer calories in that drink than if you'd had a sugary one, the results of getting the sweet taste but no calories can stimulate the appetites of consumers. They may then go on a calorie hunt, maybe 15 or 20 minutes later. In aggregate and in the long run, consumption of artificial sweeteners for the control of weight is probably at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive. In regards to people with diabetes, however, we explained the benefit of choosing artificial sweeteners earlier on in the show. Namely, they offer a sweet taste without the accompanying rise in blood sugar levels. But, unsurprisingly, the evidence here is mixed, too. While some studies report that drinking diet soda is associated with greater risk of developing diabetes, others show that artificial sweeteners do not affect blood sugar or insulin levels. It's important to note, though, that the first studies finding an association between diet soda and diabetes risk were all observational and claimed correlation, not causation. In other words, these studies don't claim that artificial sweeteners cause diabetes. They only demonstrate that people likely to develop type 2 diabetes also like to drink diet soda. It's also important to consider that the lack of conclusive evidence may partly stem from the fact that artificial sweeteners may have different effects depending on people's age or genetic background. For example, research shows that replacing sugary sodas with artificially sweetened ones produces stronger effects among Hispanic youth. 
While many argue that the current evidence base generally leans in favor of artificial sweetener use among those with diabetes, more research is needed to evaluate long-term effects in different populations. Similarly, the composition and function of gut bacteria also varies among individuals and is affected by what we eat, including certain artificial sweeteners. And if you listened to our last episode on pre and probiotics, you'll know that gut bacteria are super important in maintaining our health. In one study, the artificial sweetener saccharin disrupted gut bacteria balance in four out of seven healthy participants who were not used to consuming them. The four quote-unquote responders also showed poorer blood sugar control after as few as five days after consuming the artificial sweetener. When the gut bacteria from these people were transferred into mice, the animals also developed poor blood sugar control. But the mice implanted with the gut bacteria from the non-responders had no changes in their ability to control blood sugar levels. This simply reinforces the fact that effects seem to be personalized and more studies are needed before strong conclusions can be made. Now to move on to one of the most controversial arguments in this debate, whether there's a link between artificial sweeteners and cancer. This debate was ignited when animal studies did find a link between consumption of artificial sweeteners and cancer, but we'll let Professor Millstone tell you this one. The first artificial sweetener to be discovered was saccharin back in the 1890s, and there have been serious concerns about its safety since pretty much the beginning of the 20th century. Concerns culminated in the 1970s when a study showed that not particularly huge doses, in fact fairly moderate doses of saccharin that were fed to rats, especially over two generations, led to statistically significant increases in bladder cancer in the male rats. That caused a shadow over the safety of saccharin and created conditions that encouraged chemical companies to go searching for other artificial sweeteners that could be used instead of saccharin. And this resulted in the discovery of compounds such as aspartame and acesulfame K. The study involving lab tests of rats consuming artificial sweeteners was about both saccharin and cyclamate which, by the way, is just another artificial sweetener. So anyway, rats were fed a 10 to 1 mixture of cyclamate and saccharin that was indeed found to cause bladder cancer. After this study, concern about cyclamate heightened, and it was banned in both the United States and Europe. But thinking about those study parameters really quick, a 10 to 1 mixture of cyclamate and saccharin is the equivalent of measuring effects on humans drinking 550 cans of diet soda per day. So unless you're Mavis Gary from the movie Young Adult, it's an extreme amount. In any case, this evidence is regarded as weak by national authorities, considering that rats metabolize differently than humans. Since this initial study, more than 30 human studies have found no link between artificial sweeteners and the risk of developing cancer. One of these studies followed 9,000 participants for 13 years and analyzed their artificial sweetener intake. After accounting for other factors, the researchers found no link between artificial sweeteners and the risk of developing various types of cancer. I feel like the seriously impressive part of that study is that they followed people around for 13 years. I mean, I had a seriously hard time letting go after watching Suits for just two years. After 13 years, I might be mistaking my subjects with my family. <laughs> Exhibit A, why you're not a scientist, Daniela. 
<laughs> Fair. I do get attached way too easily. I do have to say, I get what you're saying, and that's why this whole spin-off craze is such a good idea. We don't have to let go of our favorite characters. They never leave us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well... Just to back things up a bit more, another recent review of studies published over an 11-year period did not find a link between cancer risk and artificial sweetener consumption. All in all, the FDA and EFSA have agreed that artificial sweeteners, when consumed in recommended amounts, do not increase the risk of cancer. Despite this, though, the U.S. never reapproved cyclamate for use. And the EU did? Yep, apparently it's legal over here. That feels uncharacteristic of the EU. Right? I'll let you guys know next time I'm chomping on some good old cyclamate and share my experience with you. Daniela, you better take a picture for our Instagram. I'm always bugging you about this. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it's actually super interesting that different countries inform their policies with the same pool of evidence, but with different interpretations. We asked Professor Millstone for his thoughts on the bottom line here. Listen in. I have concerns about sweeteners in general, but I am especially concerned about aspartame. But this is a consequence of the fact that I've studied aspartame in far greater detail than many of the other sweeteners. And what I've been studying has not simply been the compound and its toxicology and the way it has been tested, but also the processes that have taken place in key institutions such as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the U.K.'s ministries and the the European authorities. I've been particularly concerned about aspartame for many years, in fact, going back to the mid-1980s, And what first alerted me to these issues was when I learned that a test was conducted in which one of Aspartame's breakdown products was being fed to rats. And unfortunately, rats died during the course of those experiments. And instead of those rats being dissected to see if there was evidence that the compound might have been responsible, some of those rats were just thrown in the bin and replaced in the cages by new rats. And the laboratory team pretended that they were the same rats. Now, that is a profoundly unscientific way of proceeding. It may have been a consequence of innocent ignorance amongst some of the young people working in the lab. But when the company learned that that had happened, they should have scrapped the experiment and started again. Instead, they concealed those mistakes and pretended that the experiments had been properly conducted. And when that was uncovered, it led to a huge wave of concern, especially when that information reached the public domain, as it did in the USA. To my certain knowledge, the problems and concerns that were raised then have never been fully addressed or resolved. So I have serious doubts both about the evidence concerning the safety of aspartame and the way in which evidence about its effects have been selected and interpreted. And it always comes back to transparency and consumer awareness. Actually, maybe we'll wrap this episode up by leaving you with a typical example of a heated debate in the food industry about consumer rights. Much of the controversy surrounding Splenda, a sucralose sweetener, is focused not on safety, but on its marketing and implications for deceiving consumers. While processing replaces three hydroxyl groups in the original molecule with three chlorine atoms, 
and that's all chemistry nonsense. All you got to know is that's how we create the sucralose. Splenda, all in all, is created from sugar. So, of course, the company's marketing team used this fact to create the slogan, quote unquote, Splenda is made from sugar, so it tastes like sugar. This caused the Sugar Association, an organization representing sugar beet and sugar cane farmers in the United States, to create the, quote, Truth About Splenda website in 2005 to basically call Splenda manufacturers out on claims related to this slogan. The point of wrapping up with this story is basically to underline a point we made at the beginning of the episode, the importance of being considerate about where our information is actually coming from. And with that wise piece of advice, especially as we get ready to urge you all onto social media, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Give us a shout and tell us your thoughts on these sweeteners. Are you grateful for them or do you prefer natural sugars? Are you as surprised as we were to find out that sweeteners could somehow maybe help our dental health? (laughs) I'm personally still skeptical on that one. And most importantly, of course, are you Team Coke or Team Pepsi? Let us know by reaching out to us on Instagram and Twitter at ISGP Forum or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ISGP Forum or on our website at www.isgpforum.org. Special thanks to Professor Eric Millstone for joining us on today's episode. And thanks to you all for tuning in and socializing with science. Make sure to join us for our next episode in two weeks' time right here on the forum. The Forum is sponsored by the Institute on Science for Global Policy, or ISGP, an international think tank that has no opinions and does not lobby. Any views expressed in the preceding podcast are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by ISGP. Podcast theme music is provided by Steve Combs and Lee Rosevier. For more information on the Forum and its programs, please visit our website at isgpforum.org.